Good morning. Let's pray together before we jump in. Our Father, I thank you for this morning. We, we, we've come together to, to worship you and to uh, glorify Jesus, to make Jesus known in this place uh, to one another, and, and we're totally dependent on you to do that. We're totally dependent on you to make Jesus known. So I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would, would do that here, um, just glorify you, make you known to us, God, that, that our hearts would know you. We know your great love for us, that we would know uh, just the depths of who you are and how great you are, um, and, and that you would change us, and that you would just set our eyes on Jesus. I pray that you would speak over the next few minutes, that, that it wouldn't be about my words, but it would be about what you have for each one of us. I pray that uh, you would open each one of our ears to hear what you have for us, and I pray that you would use it to transform us uh, into Christ-likeness, that as we go from this place this morning, uh, we would be more like you and we would make you known in our city. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're all looking for a Savior, but the question uh, for us this morning is what do you need saving from? Or, or at least what is it that you think that you need saving from the very most? As we've talked about already in our time in the book of Hebrews, which we've been in for a few weeks now, uh, Jewish Christians in the early church who were under uh, persecution from the Roman Empire and, and really even uh, the general Jewish population, they were probably feeling the need to be saved from suffering, from persecution, from possible death, maybe feeling the pressure uh, to retreat from Christianity in order to save themselves. And the author of Hebrews has been impressing on them this truth, that though their situation is serious and their felt need is very great, there is still a greater saving that they need, and it's available. They need saving from sin. They need a restored relationship with God and the restored life and purpose that comes with that, more than they need saving from any present persecution or threat. They need a Savior who can save them from sin and from death. And so the question for us is, what do you feel that you need saving from? Maybe it's financial pressure. Uh, it could be loneliness. Maybe you need saving from a busy schedule. Maybe you need saving from family issues, saving from uh, marital issues. There could be a number of things what do you feel that you need saving from? In what area can you feel the pressure in your life the most? Where are you on the edge? Where are you looking for a Savior, any Savior, any way out? And where are you thinking of retreating? Who are you thinking of turning to for help? This morning, we're going to cover like quite a bit of Scripture from the book of Hebrews, but we're going to take it in some chunks, and it's a lot. But, but I want us to see how the author or the preacher of, of, of Hebrews um, is sort of like unwinding one big idea that anchors us to Jesus as the one true Savior. And so we're just going to go ahead and start reading this morning in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verses 14 through 16. If you want to turn there and follow along with me, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have these verses on the screen as well for you to follow along. It's Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And it says this, 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in ev- who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Now I consider these couple of verses to kind of be like the thesis of Hebrews. Everything, everything else is really kind of supporting these verses, this statement. For us, it may seem odd for a thesis of the, of the thing to come four chapters in, but if you went back through the first four chapters, you could see how they've already been working to support this statement. Chapters 1 and 2 like uh, demonstrated how Jesus was greater than and better than the angels who are sort of um, these heavenly apostles, these messengers of God. And then in chapter 3 uh, through 4, uh, the first part of 4, as we covered last week, Jesus is demonstrated to be better than and greater than Moses. And Moses uh, was, was the one who God chose as a mediator, right, between the Hebrew people and himself. And later, when the office of high priest was set up, this was their job. The high priest was the mediator between people and God. The high priest made sacrifices on behalf of of the people. And so these two roles culminate into one. Back in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus, the apostle who's greater than those heavenly apostles, the angels. Consider Jesus, the high priest, the greater mediator between people and God. And, and here in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, where we just read. It just sort of wraps up these points, and it transitions them into the main point of the sermon, which is just going to be expanded on from here on out. And it presses into this point that what other mediators or what other high priests cannot do, Jesus has already done. See, what kept people from the Holy of Holies, what kept people from the innermost place of the tabernacle where the presence of God was with his people. What kept people from God was sin. And all the high priests who came before, all the other mediators, they were human and they weren't without sin, nor nor would they remain without sin. And so they had to continually make sacrifices for themselves and on behalf of the people. But Jesus became human and was without sin, and he will forever remain sinless, and he was the perfect sacrifice once and for all time. And so we're made holy by his sacrifice, and we have access to the throne. That's what these verses are saying. We have access to God. We have no need for another mediator. Jesus is our mediator. No other mediator could give us access to God. And the news that Jesus brings to us is better than the news of those heavenly angels, those heavenly apostles, because the good news of Jesus doesn't just point to some future uh, salvation. Verse 16 says, Jesus presently brings us to the throne of grace and says that we may receive mercy, that we may find grace to help in a time of need. Presently. So the thesis here is essentially this. Jesus is the only one who can save us once and for all from what we need saving the most, which is sin and death. 
He's the only one who can restore us to right relationship with God, to right relationship with each other in this world, and give us restored life and give us restored purpose. And the great like application here, or the great invitation of this whole book, really, and of this sermon to the Hebrew people is simply this, that Jesus has already done it. And so the invitation is to come to Him and seek no other saviors. Because the one who can save you from sin and death, the thing that you need the most, can save you from everything lesser than that. And he can be trusted in every circumstance to know and meet your very greatest need. Now, the next chunk of Hebrews, Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, which we're going to read in just a second, it just keeps unpacking the truth of how Jesus has, in fact, taken the place of the need for any other high priest, any other mediator between us and God. And it's like, like this is another 10 verses. You might wonder why belabor this point. But I want us to remember that, that this is written, this is preached to these earliest, early Jewish Christians who were facing persecution. They're likely on the edge, as we said every week, on the verge of returning to their old practices for safety. They might be thinking about just going back to the law, right, which would include going back to the high priest as their mediator between them and God. And the preacher here points, uh, his point is for them to see how Jesus stands out as a better high priest than that religious system has to offer. In fact, as we're going to see, the high priest of that old system is no longer valid. The office was a good and, and God-appointed position, but it always was pointing to Jesus. Right? It was always just making way for the eternal Savior. It was never going to be eternally sufficient. And Jesus has come. So there's nothing of value in that system anymore. He's replaced what they would retreat to. He alone is their retreat. He alone is our retreat. So he continues just to make his case here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Again, you could read along with me. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and their wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when, God call, only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. To demonstrate that Jesus was, in fact, a valid high priest, the author digs in and he shows how Jesus, like other high priests before him, was called by God. Just as God called Aaron, who was, who was Moses' brother, 
to be a high priest, and he called his descendants after him to continue to serve in that role. God also called Jesus. There's a difference in how God called Jesus, though. And I'm not going to lie to you, it's kind of a complicated thing for us to try to wrap our heads around and work out. Because the author of Hebrews quotes two psalms that act as God calling Jesus as high priest. Like, he's not quoting two instances from the gospel, not events that just happened in the year past, but two psalms of David, Psalm 2, verse 7, and Psalm 110, verse 4. And both of these psalms, they just kind of have David like looking forward to the fulfillment of God's ultimate promises to bless and to rule the nations. And David like seemed to acknowledge and to look forward to the day when one would come from God to save his people once and for all. And in doing this, David writes in the voice of the Lord saying in Psalm 2 that this Savior will be God's chosen and begotten Son. And then in Psalm 110.7, he says that the chosen one will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so we come to this sort of like mysterious historical figure of Melchizedek, which we're going to hear about more next week also. And as I talked with Reggie kind of about this stuff, as the next few chapters uh, after today, we're going to keep diving into this high priest stuff. We're going to keep talking about Melchizedek. We just sort of agreed that it's just hard for us non-Jewish folks uh, who are separated by time and space from this concept, context to really like wrap our head around what's going on here. But tough as it may be, tough as it may be for us to grasp, it is for us also as we've been grafted into the family of God. And what we really need to know here is that Melchizedek, who's just sort of like this blip on the screen back in, in Genesis, who acted as a priest, as a mediator between Abraham and God in a, in a moment. He was a priest who was outside of the law. I mean, he, he predated the law, right? He came long before Moses was ever around. He came before there was a nation. He came before God ever set up the tabernacle, before he ever set up the law, before he set up the whole system with his people in the wilderness. And so Melchizedek, his priesthood is not determined by the same uh, rules uh, as the priests of the law. God chose him from outside of those bounds. And Jesus, like Melchizedek, is before the law. I mean, he create, he's the creator of all things. We've already read that in Hebrews. Of course he's before the law. And even more so, as the Son of God, Jesus is not only like before the priesthood of the law, he's above it, he's beyond it, he's greater than it. And all this is just to say that Jesus, like all high priests, is called by God, but his priesthood is greater than those who have come before him. Now we have to put a pin in that. And we have to like just leave this for a moment because the sermon kind of takes like this hard left turn in this next section. It almost feels like a short detour, but I'm going to ask you just to put a pin in this, hang with me because I think it all comes back around together and there's really just one clear thought that's being put together for us. So we're going to read this. Uh, next section is chapter 5, 11 through 6, 8. You can follow along. It says this. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull with hearing. For though by this time you, you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk 
not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of the faith toward God and of the instruction about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it's impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is to cultivate it, it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and it sends it to be burned. So, just as like Hebrews was getting into some pretty deep stuff about Christ being a greater and better uh, priest and all else, the preacher just stops and he takes this, what seems like a detour. I think it even sounds at first reading a little insulting at the beginning of what we just read. The preacher kind of says uh, that they're like immature children, that they can't understand all the stuff we're about to get into. And, and this is because their hearing has become dull. I don't, I don't actually think it's insulting. I just think it's being honest. I mean, the, the truth is that because of the threat of suffering, right, their faith is shaky. They're, they're on the edge. They're thinking of retreating back to the law. And that means that they are seeking a savior of some other kind in some other way. And they've, at the moment, they're forgetting, they've forgotten that Jesus is better and that they can hardly hear the truth of it because they don't feel the weight of sin so much right now as they fear the possibility of death or of persecution or of suffering. And so the preacher stops and he, and he makes this side note. And what he says here, particularly in uh, chapter 6, 4 through 8, it, it's caused a lot of controversy and arguments in the church. 6, 4 through 6 uh, puts it bluntly. I'm going to read that again. It says, For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then who have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. And the argument uh, or the controversy that we get into here is about whether or not you can lose your salvation. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. But I also would say that I don't actually think that that's what's being talked about here. Not in the way that we would talk about such things. Rather, what the preacher is really getting at is this. It's still supporting that main thesis, actually. What he's saying is that Jesus is the only place of enlightenment, of tasting the heavenly gift, of sharing in the Holy Spirit, and all those things. Jesus is the only Savior. Jesus is the only one who can take away our sin. Jesus is the only way back to God. And so for these early Jewish Christians who have recognized Jesus as Savior and they've followed him, maybe in their fragile state in the moment, like under the threat of suffering, maybe they haven't thought it through. 
but there's nowhere else for them to go. Going back isn't actually an option because Jesus isn't just better than the law. He isn't just better than the temple. He's not just better than the high priest and all those things they used to practice. He's replaced it. While for a time those things were in place and they they were for God's people and given to them by God himself, they were not eternal. They always were pointing to Christ. There's there's nothing to go back to. But people were still doing those things. There's just nothing in it for them. And this passage isn't saying that for those who turn back, there's never a way back to Christ, no way back to repentance. What it's saying is that there is no other way. There's no other way to atone for sin. And for those who would turn anywhere else into anything else, they won't find real salvation anywhere else. There is no path to repentance out there. They won't find their way back to God. They'll just be turning their back on God's way and looking to something else as an idol. And the ultimate sacrifice has already been made in the person of Jesus Christ. And any further sacrificing is just a denying of Him. It's just trying to replace Him. But Jesus has replaced that whole system What sacrifice could be better than Jesus himself? So this whole section isn't really a detour at all. It's built on the idea that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's above, he's beyond, and he's before and he's forever after that old system. Do you remember that scene in John chapter 6, 68? Everybody's got that memorized, right? John 6, 68. If you don't remember, it's right after Jesus has preached some pretty hard things to a crowd, kind of like lose your life uh, to find it sort of things, stuff that makes people go away. And many of his followers left, the Bible says. And then Jesus turns to his 12 followers, the 12 disciples, and he asks, do you want to go away as well? And I love the way Peter answered him, and, and, and I think it is the answer that the preacher in Hebrews is leading his audience to as well. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? I mean, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The author of Hebrews isn't trying to be insulting. He hasn't left his point, really. He's just leading people to recognize that their pending persecution has them answering that same question. Do you want to go as well? And he wants them to see clearly that that truly there's nowhere else they could go. Retreat isn't actually a valid option. Only Jesus has the saving that they need the most. Only Jesus has defeated suffering and death. Only Jesus gives life everlasting. Now let's read the final chunk of this passage. It's Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, 
but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore it by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and I will multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes and their oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so after that warning in the previous verses, the, the, the preacher returns to this road that he was already on. He, he turns back towards more like directly uh, supporting his main claim about Jesus being the greater and better high priest while also sort of like bolstering uh, this main invitation that we read back in chapter 4, verse 16, which was, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. And the preacher does this by appealing back to Abraham. Now, Abraham, if you remembered the story back in Genesis, he was called out by God from Ur, and God promised to give he and his barren wife, Sarah, a son and a family through which he would bless the whole world. And Abraham left Ur, and he went. But if you remember, Abraham also messed up several times. Like when push came to shove, he constantly looked elsewhere for a savior. He tried to deliver on the promises of God for himself. He turned to other things, right? He slept with Hagar and had Ishmael as he was seeking to have a son by any means necessary. But it wasn't God's way, and it did nothing but cause more harm. And he lied about being Sarah's husband and said that she was his sister so that Abimelech, the ruler of the land that they dwelled in the time, wouldn't kill him in order to take her. But it wasn't God's way, and he was found out. And Abraham spent a lot of time and a lot of energy looking elsewhere for a Savior. But he finally found that only God was faithful and just to save. And at last he trusted in him and even was willing to obediently offer Isaac, his only son with Sarah, as a sacrifice. And God delivered him from doing such a thing, of course, and he provided a sacrifice for himself in Isaac's place. God provided a sacrifice for himself. You know, God's word has always been good, like since the very beginning. And with Abraham, he made this oath that the scripture says was unbreakable. He promised he was making a way to save us from sin and death, and his word was good. God's word has always been good. He was making a, a way to restore us to life, to restore us to right relationship with him. And God cannot lie. And what he says he will do will be done. But to strengthen Abraham's trust in his word, God swore by himself, the scripture says. And to make such an oath, there must be a sufficient sacrifice. 
but only God would be a sufficient sacrifice to seal an oath sworn by God. And in Jesus, the sacrifice has been made, and sin and death are defeated once and for all. And that's the thing, isn't it? Like the Savior that we really need would have to prove that He can deal with our very biggest problem. And if He can deal with our very biggest problem, then He can surely deal with any one of our felt needs. And our very biggest problem is sin. Because sin separates us from God. It separates us from what our life is actually all about. And it keeps us living more in a state of dying than in a state of living. And in the end, it leads us to death that is everlasting. And there's nothing that we can do about it. So if Jesus can save us from sin, if he can save us from death everlasting, what can he not save us from? And if Jesus is for us in a way that he would save us from sin and death by dying on our behalf, what would he not do for us? Can't he be trusted in everything and in every way? And if everlasting death for us is dealt with in Jesus Christ, then maybe our felt needs in this life aren't actually what we need the most. Maybe we don't have to run from the hard stuff because he's faithful through the hard stuff, through it all, and even through death. So what are your felt needs? What do you need saving from? In what areas are you on the edge? Where are you looking for a Savior? How would you save yourself? My prayer for us as a church, like like that of the author of Hebrews, is that we would grow into this mature and unshakable faith. That, That we as a people would trust Jesus so thoroughly that we could be facing death and boldly walk into it and through it. But it's also okay if we're not there yet. Jesus is faithful and just to mature us in our faith, to keep making himself fully known to us. And that's why we have these scriptures, because we face our own shaky ground. We come to our own edges. We're tempted to look for salvation elsewhere. We can be encouraged this morning. Because Jesus is greater and he is better than any Savior that you and I could look for. He can be trusted in all things as he's died for you and he has risen. He's provided salvation from that thing which we needed saving for the very most, sin and death. So he can be trusted to deal graciously and mercifully with you in all things. And you and I, we've been invited in to know him to experience his great love, to experience his grace, mercy, and help. We have access to the throne of the King of Kings, this passage told us, the Lord of Lords. You may not have access to like big top executives and billionaires or whatever in this world. You may not have access to top level politicians or kings and queens of the world, but you and I have access to God who is above them. We have access to the one who made it all and who owns it all and who provides and makes all things. So the invitation is simple for us, and it's this. Don't turn to anyone or anything else. Don't settle for some idol. 
some weak Savior who can truly deliver you from nothing that you really need? And I say this to a Christian as a reminder and to the non-Christian here. It's an invitation to come to Jesus and to follow him. It's like the scripture says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, that we may find grace to help in a time of need. We're going to move into a time of response as we do each week here at Redemption the band's going to come, and they're going to lead us uh, in, in a time of worship through singing together. And we're also going to come, and we're going to take communion. And as we come, there's an offering basket in the back if you want to give your tithes and offerings there. Maybe you give it electronically. Maybe it slips out of your bank account, and you kind of forget about it at this point. We always want to remind you to take a moment during this time of response and remember this, this God who made everything and who has provided everything, even himself, for us and acknowledge that 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 offering that you're giving him back and worship him in that and then as we come we're going to come and we're going to take the bread and you can dip it in the wine you can dip it in the juice we also have a little uh, pack here with a wafer and, and juice in it if you would rather have that and when we do this we are coming we're taking the the bread which is representative of the body of Christ and we're dipping it in these the wine or the juice which represents the blood of Jesus Christ and we are remembering our Savior, our one and only Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for us and who rose again. And we're acknowledging and remembering that we have nowhere else to go. He's all we will ever need. And we're proclaiming that truth as we take it to one another. We're reminding each other. We're remembering that we've been called into the family of God, that we've been made one with Him and one with each other. It's a great truth that we remember and proclaim as we do this. And so we invite you, if you're a Christian, if you would make that confession with us, to come and make this proclamation together and take this with us, whether you're a member at Redemption Church or not. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to move into that time. Our Father, we just thank you for Jesus Christ. We just thank you for our Savior. We thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for making yourself known for us, to us. We thank you for coming for us. We thank you for dealing with our very greatest need, and that's captivity to sin and death. You have come for us, and you've defeated it. What else can you not overcome? God, I pray, make us a people who can trust you wholly to not only provide for our every need, but to know what our needs really are, even better than us, even better than we know them. May we trust you. May our faith be anchored in Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. And may we become unshakable and mature in a way that we look to him at all times and in every way and point everyone everywhere to him and invite everybody into the family of God and make Jesus known. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.